Our scripture this morning is coming from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 24. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Oh, good morning. My name is Ron, and I'll be filling in for John today, who's on vacation with his family. We're going to start off with a story that I think you've, had, you've heard before somewhere. It's the story of a father-son team, Dick and Rick Hoyt. Now, when Rick was born, Rick was born with, he couldn't talk, he couldn't walk, he had cerebral palsy. He was told by doctors that he'd be nothing more than a vegetable, just put him in an institution. His parents said, no, we are going to bring him home and treat him like a real boy, do all the boy things that boys should be doing. Well, uh, in his teenage years, uh, Rick got a little uh, uh, device that was able to communicate because he couldn't talk. So he was able to talk through this computer, and he asked his dad, I'd like to run a race with um, this fundraising for a kid who can't walk, for teenagers who can't walk. So Dick Hoyt, his dad, was out of shape and said, okay, I can do a five-mile race. Anyone can run five miles, right? So we did. And as Dick Hoyt will say, we didn't come in last. We came in second to last, but still, we finished the race. We crossed the race as his dad was pushing uh, the wheelchair for Rick. Rick said, I couldn't wait to get home after that first night to get to my computer, and I could type for my dad. He, he said, Dad, when we were running, my disability felt like it disappeared. Really nice image here. Well, Dick pushed Rick a few more races, and a few more after that, and a few more after that. Five-mile races turned into marathons, turned into triathlons, and the Ironman. So you have this idea of uh, a father pushing his son all of this way. On the triathlons, on the Ironmans, uh, we had a he had a bicycle seat built for Rick, and so he rode his bike 112 miles with Rick attached to it. Rick was in a raft, 
and Dick swam two miles with this raft harnessed to his body, and then after that, pushed the wheelchair for 26 miles. They competed together in 1,100 races as a father and son team. In 1992, uh, they entered the uh, Marine Corps Marathon. You may have heard of that or something, right? Marine Corps Marathon. They finished it in two hours and 40 minutes. Dick's uh, age group, 50 to 59, when he did that, he finished first in that. They ran 32 Boston marathons every single year uh, in, for 32 years. They entered the Boston marathons. That is, let me do the math, how many more that was than I did. That is 32 more marathons than I've ever, <laughs> I've ever uh, ran. So after, after all of this, uh, Rick would say, my dad and I, when we're out on a run, a special bond forms within us. And I feel like there's nothing that dad and I cannot do. And so he has Dick Hoyt, the father, just died about two months ago at 80 years old. Uh, Rick now is 59 years old. And uh, he's, he's had this line when they were, he got a lot of press, because these are, it's a famous father-son team. There's a statue outside of Boston. They're Massachusetts folk. If you watch some clips, it has like this great Massachusetts, New England accent that I'm going to have when I come back from Rhode Island here pretty soon again. Uh, They interviewed Rick after this, after his dad died, and he said that my dad was my motor and I was his heart. I love that phrase as a father. My dad was my motor and I was his heart. What a great image for fathers on Father's Day. Since it is Father's Day, I'll give you my, the quote that I, I really love this quote on Father's Day. It says this, fathers matter. Ask anyone with a great one or anyone without one. Both people will tell you that fathers matter. God cares about fathers. Throughout the Bible, he positions himself as a father to the fatherless. He tells us about caring for orphans. Psalm 68.5 says this, father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. Father of the fatherless. God identifies as a father like we do. Now, I need to give a disclaimer as we're on here Father's Day message here is that I want to say this once because you're going to in your head say it all the time throughout the sermon. Let me say this. Mothers matter too, okay? Mothers matter too. And I really think there is great honor for mothers as well. But this is Father's Day. This is our day. Okay? We're taking this. Uh, Mothers matter too. A lot of what's said today can be said about mothers just the same, but God does have a unique role for fathers. Just let's keep that in mind. Um, The idea is that mother's role is never questioned in society. No one ever questions the importance of mothers. Fathers, though, in a society like ours today, fathers seem to be Um, dispensable. And so fathers' roles are questioned. We could talk about some stats about what it's like in a fatherless family, the stats of problems that come out of a fatherless family home. That's a conversation perhaps for another day. But fathers matter, and we need to remember that. God remembers that. Now, the danger of preaching on a Father's Day is that if, if we were all looking out here, I would say that half of you, at the best case, are men, just half. I think women are a little more, too. So let's just say 50%. And then out of those 50%, not all are fathers. So let's say out of the 50% of men who are here, you have maybe, I don't know, 45% are fathers. 
I don't know, I'm making up numbers as we go. Uh, 45%, and then we have kids in here, lots of kids in here. And then we're down to like 35% of the audience are dads. So that's a very small focus group to give a Father's Day message. But here's why a Father's Day message, even with maybe 35% of us as dads, matters. Is that, first of all, many of the men in here, if they're not dads, they will become dads someday, perhaps. That bumps it up to about 45%. Most women in here are married to a father or will marry a father someday. We're at 75, 100%. And you all had a father or have a father. We're at 100%. Boom. Okay, that's everybody. Okay, so a Father's Day message matters for a day like today because it affects all of us. We know the importance of fathers. And we know the importance of fathers whether we did have that great dad growing up or whether we had a really bad dad growing up, or like most of us probably are somewhere in the middle, um, is that we all understand the power of a father. Now, God calls himself father. God does not identify as a mother or an uncle or a brother or a sister or a teacher or a coach or a soldier. That is not his main uh, identity to us. He positions himself as a father. And that's important, is that our, us earthly dads are called the same name that God calls himself. God's name is Father, and so is yours. That seems to be pretty important. So we share the name of Father. Here's our overall main idea for today's sermon. God is glorified when fathers lead our families in strength, pursue our children in love, and grow in our spiritual lives. God is glorified when fathers lead families in strength, pursue children in love, and grow in our spiritual lives. We're going to see today this picture, if you haven't already noticed it, the picture of two fathers running, both examples for us as earthly dads today, Dick Hoyt and the prodigal son's father. The title of today's sermon is The Father Who Runs, and we're going to see that displayed. So point number one, God is glorified when we lead our families in strength. I'm going to give you this quote, see if you know it here. It's a political saying about voting habits. How California goes, so goes, yell it out if you know it. I heard mumbling. America. All right, I heard that. I'll, I'll, I'll fill it in here. How, how California goes, so goes America. It's this, it's this pattern that however California votes, that usually determines the election in some strange thing. As an Oregonian, I hate anything positive about California, so I don't like that quote. But moving in that same vein, how goes California, goes America? How goes the father, goes the family? We may not like this idea, but our role, however we act, and our moods, and our temperaments, and our models, go the entire family. Our family reflects the father, uh, the earthly father here. And so how is your family going? The way your family is going is a direct reflection to you. And we are called to lead our children well. And so let's see how we can do that. No matter your personality type, no matter if you're an outgo extrovert or introvert, your family would probably say this about you, that you can change the attitude of, your, of the entire room just by walking into it, right? You walk into the room as a dad, it can be positive, it can be not so positive. So I know this firsthand. I could be sitting around the table in a, a real bratty mood. 
you're all way more mature than I am, so I'm sure you've, that's never happened to you. But I'm sitting at the dinner table fuming. I'm just so mad. Just, you know, it's probably something Christy did. But uh, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just so mad, and I'm sitting there, and everybody is kind of walking around eggshells around me, and I can feel it. I can sense all of that. Uh, and so I just sit there, and I can think in my head, I know that a joke or a kind word, I could turn this whole thing around. But and on my best days, I can do that, get over myself and move forward. And it ends up changing the whole conversation around the meal. Or, like I do in my worst moments, I sit there and fume. I'm not saying anything nice to these people. Uh, I don't want to do that. And so it stays, it stays, the family stays stuck because of me. There's no motor, there's no movement, and it's all because of me, because I know that I set the tone in my house, and it's true in your house. And if you don't have uh, kids, think about your childhood home, that when your dad came home from work, you could tell instantly if this was going to be a good night or a bad night, because fathers can do that. They change their tone, and are you controlling yours? And we can change it. I mean, that's why they're called dad jokes, right? I mean, we could change it like that. They're hilarious. Everyone loves them. Uh, and so we can just move everything around. There's a verse in Psalms that I think is a bit troubling sometimes. Uh, Psalms 103.13. Put it up here on the screen. Uh, Psalms 103.13 says this. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You can see this, this comparison being made. As Ron shows compassion to his kids, so God shows compassion to Ron. I don't know if I like that. Because sometimes Ron doesn't show compassion to his kids. I almost wish this verse was flippity-flopped to show as like a model to say that as God shows compassion to you, fathers, you fathers should show compassion to your kids. That makes more sense. But the way it's written now... God has this built-in leadership that I need to follow as a dad because I am the example of God in my house. I'm not God in my house, but I am an example of God in my house, according to this verse. It should be the other way around, but it makes this weight of leadership fall on my shoulders, as it ought to be. Well, my kids model and watch me as your kids model and watch you, good or bad. You know, it's a joy when all of my best qualities come out in the children, right? Look at you. Oh, you're so godly because you're like me. Uh, and so I love those moments. However, those moments are sometimes outweighed by these moments where it's like, who taught you that? You taught me that, Dad. You taught me that. Uh, you know, I am hearing some kind of mix of that nowadays. I've learned this from you. Uh, okay. Uh, so... We know that we are models for our kids. We can lead in our households by being a good model in a way that would reflect Jesus in our house. So let me ask you a few questions, dads. If you need help, your wife can answer these questions better to see from an outside perspective. Do they, your kids see you reading the Bible more than they see you reading your phone? Or let's just say books. Do they see you reading books or your phone more? Do they see you serving your wife with kindness or do they see you being expected to be served by your wife? Here's an easy one. Do they see you washing dishes? If you do nothing else from this sermon, men, go wash the dishes. It's an easy thing to do, and you look really cool uh, doing it. <laughs> do they see you talking through arguments and hard things? Or do they see you punching walls and cursing? Do they see you working late 
Or do they see you trying to put family first in light of a, of a difficult work situation? Do they see you serving others in the church and outside the church? Or do they see you more complaining about those people at church who don't come up and talk to me? Or how dare they? Or the music wasn't this? Or the, they had some guest preacher one day. You know, do they see you complaining? Or do they see you trying to serve others? Or best yet, do they see you getting value from Jesus? Or do they see you getting value from your job or your friends or your level 14 of whatever game you're playing right now? Where do they see this? A way that we can value people. Uh, we can show value. We can lead by modeling. We can lead our family with some hard decisions. This does not mean dads make all the hard decisions. That is not leadership. That's a dictatorship. Totally different. Unbiblical. But rather, are you leading the way in hard decisions? This means bringing up hard things. This is being the point man on making these decisions for the good of your family. Perhaps it's duty stations, moving around, um, ensuring the family stays together. Are you making these decisions that are hard and may be costly, but yet you're leading by showing the family is very important? That's a way we can lead our families. Here's one. Wives, you're going to love this. You can send me a thank you note later. Lead your family by creating space for your wife to leave the house and be with friends, be by herself. And I know a lot of you are my friends, and you do this already, and I just think that this is the basic. This is like being a great dad 101 here, is find time. If you're, if you're the one who works and your wife stays home all day, find a weekend where your wife can go away to uh, rent her a hotel room in Chiton at the Hilton. It's 200 bucks, but it's money well spent. Uh, talk to Zachariah Pittman. He has some points. He can get you a free room. Uh, so here, it's like by, by carving out time to show that it is important to recharge for you and your wife, then that is leading your family well. Then your wife can come back refreshed and ready to engage in the family again. On date nights, you be the one to hire a babysitter. Novel idea, right? You be the one to plan all of this. All of these things are leading our family well so that our family can work together well to reflect Christ. And then lead your family in family worship. About a year ago, we started this, and we never really did much, honestly, in family worship. But after meeting with some of you who do this well in your house, we really wanted to do this. And I read that little book that's kind of floating around here, Family Worship by uh, Whitney, 60 pages long. It's worth checking out. And his policy is this. It's us read, pray, sing. Find something to read in the Bible, pray together as a family, sing a song together. And honestly, I was afraid. I was nervous of, of, to bring this up to my family somehow. But I knew that if I didn't do anything, nothing would happen. And so like bringing up, hey, guys, here's what, we're, here's what I'd like us to do. And you know what everyone's response was? Great. Yeah, let's go. So we finish eating. We leave the dishes there, go in the living room, put on Apple TV with lyrics, and we sing a couple of songs, or a song, I shouldn't say a couple of songs. We sing a song, and it's an easy step that we can take as men leading our families in that. Doesn't have to be anything big. Don't go home today. We're going to read Isaiah before, after dinner tonight. And no, just something very small. The whole thing can take 15 minutes. And it would be something in which you can lead your family well. And maybe it's just setting aside dinner to sit together at a table. Maybe that's where your leadership begins. So that you just say, this is an important time. We're going to have dinner with no screens around us, no TV on. That may be a step. 
And a little fringe benefit of all this is I'm told that husbands who lead well are more attractive to their wives. So a guy like me needs any help I can get. So I'm doing it. Uh, and so, you know, ask Christy how attractive I am. And uh, it's magazine cover level. Uh, but our kids would see how our work creates value in us, my job. Dads want to see their kids when they win special awards, and they want their kids there in the front row to watch this or that, be put on, whatever. And all of that is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But really, your kids don't care. I mean, I've gotten a couple of special awards that I felt honored to receive. Do you think my kids respond any different to me? <laughs> because, hey, look at this award. It's in a certificate, a plastic holder, too. Nobody cares about that. I taught with a guy who, he was a teacher, but he coached a lot. He really was passionate about coaching. He coached every sport possible, gone all the time. Um, he had little kids just like us. And I just said, why are you doing this so much? You're away from your home every single night. They're doing games all day, Saturdays, Sundays. And he said, well, kids don't respect teachers. But if I coach and I win some awards, my kids will respect me more. And I was like, yeah, good luck. Because kids don't care what your high school, your dad's high school team won. I, who cares? Nobody cares. Here's what your kids care about. Where are you at 5 o'clock? That's it. Answer that question and forget about the awards. Let's move to our second point. God is glorified when we pursue our children in love. And this is where this beautiful story of the prodigal son comes in. And it, if you're like me, this is one of the best parts of the Bible. We love this story. It's such a powerful story. Prodigal son asks his father before the father dies for his inheritance. Think about how rude this is. You know, I don't care that you're going to die someday. Just give me my money now. The father does. The boy squanders it, runs off, wine, women, and song. When all the money is gone, of course, all the friends are gone too. Uh, all those hanger-oners are gone. He realizes, and he, he rehearses this speech in his head as he's kind of like pondering eating pig food. He's like, you know, my dad's servants eat better than this. So here's what I'm going to do. He comes up with this, this speech, and he prepares it. He practices it probably all the way to the going home. He's like, I know I'm not a good son, and I'm not your son anymore. I'm not worthy to be your son, but give me a time to be your servant. I'll serve you well as a servant. He, he gives all of this. But it says this. When he was still a long, while he was still a long way off, as the boy's coming back, the father, while he's still a long way off, which kind of shows us that he's waiting there. The father somehow was anticipating, looking for, scanning the horizon for his son to return. His father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him, was so excited. And then his son moves into the speech that he had rehearsed. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy. The father just cuts him off. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up with all that. Give this. You're, you're now, your sonship is back. Bring the best robe. Put it on and put the ring on his hand. My son was dead and he's alive again. He's lost and he is now found. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of the gospel where the father runs toward us even when we know we're undeserving. He, this, this father in the prodigal, the prodigal son's father, runs toward him. There was so much wrong that this son had done, so much wrong that the son, he, he was wicked and lazy. He ran after his son rather, for, rather than punishment, but with joy 
and hope. What the son did was terrible, wasted all of the father's good kindness toward him. But the father, it doesn't say while he was still off, the father drafted contracts to ensure this would never happen again. The father came up with a repayment plan for the money that he squandered. The father, while he was still off, the father practiced his stern lecture and to show all of the just consequences. No, none of that. He ran toward his son, grabbed him, kissed him, and said, my son was dead and now he's alive. This is a picture of not only what God the Father has done for us as uh, rebels, but rather it's, a good, it's also a good model for us to see how we pursue our kids. How are we running toward our kids? Do we run after them? Do we try to have their hearts point toward the gospel by chasing them down? Are we like this father who when the, the kid is, our kids are far way off in their expectations or their behavior or our desires or hope for them and they're still a far way off, do we run toward them or do we grumble like the older brother, which we didn't get to in the story, but the older brother is off on the side grumbling. The father in the story gave up his time and money and pride to run after his son. You know, you know this from commentaries perhaps, but fathers, men didn't run in this culture. It was seen as childish or womanly. They just didn't run. But here the man, the father lifted up his tunic so his legs would move faster and he ran toward his son. He looked like a fool to everybody, but that wasn't important to him. Dick Hoyt, our father at the beginning, Dick Hoyt had to give up time to practice, time to run and train, time and money to buy the right equipment so that his son could run. Dick ran. The prodigal son's father ran to their children. Are we doing the same? Well, here's one way we can do it. We pursue our children well. We run toward our children well by playing with them. Now, this is our superpower as dads. Nobody ever has to tell us to play with kids, right? I'll take any kid here from the audience and I'll throw them around. Who is it? Matthew, come here for a sec. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. But it's just in our nature, isn't it? Like we just play with kids. It's, it's what we do. Uh, I asked Hudson as I was putting the final touches on this this weekend, uh, I was like, what advice would you give to dads to be better dads? Without even skipping a beat, play with kids more. So there, from Hudson, 11-year-old, that's your advice. Play with your kids more. Last week, when the women were at the retreat, six or seven of us uh, dads took our kids to Torrey Beach. There were no moms anywhere. It was awesome, right? There was no suntan lotion put on anybody or a sunblock. There was no water breaks. There were kids flying so high in the air in the ocean that I don't even, I think we left a couple there, honestly. It was so fun. And it was like, don't tell your mom we did this fun. You know, dads do this. It's good stuff. In our house, I do what my dad did with me when I was a little kid, and that is just wrestle on the floor. Um, and if you come to my house, I have all these moves that I can show you that our family has named, uh, mainly me. But uh, I could show you what the buzzsaw is, the frostbite, the sideburn, sunburn, the tickle crab, periwinkle, inside slap, anti-gravity chair, wiggle worm. I, look, I can keep going here. And in fact, if you don't laugh at my jokes, I'm going to do them on you. Uh, and so the idea is that one of the things that we do really well in our house is get on the floor and play with kids. Nothing tells kids that there is more, they're more important than playing with them. Nothing tells kids more that they're important than by getting on the ground and playing with them. So if you're having behavior problems with your kids, here's one good step toward that. Just play with them more. Roughhouse with them. 
I mean, if they're roughhousey, I mean, one of our kids is not as roughhousey and it turns into a lot of tears, but we're working on that. But uh, like play with your kids. I'll show you some moves if you need the moves. Uh, and if you're too tired, you know, because you had a long week and all, too bad. Put the phone down, get off the couch, and get on the floor and play with your kids. And I think this pursuing after your kids like that can do wonders today. Another way we can pursue our kids is by talking with them. Whether we're talking to them about God or sex or life, all of these asking of good questions helps connect with our kids more. Are we asking good questions or are we just leaving that for the kids' teachers? I'm an English teacher and I read a lot of kids' writing and it's sad because I often feel like I know more about the kid than the parents know about the kid because the kid will say, my parents don't know about this. And I know there might be some teenage rebellion weird stuff going on there, but I just never want my kid's English teacher to know more about my kids than I know about my kids. And you know how I can stop that? By asking better questions than the kid's teachers. I'm glad the kids have teachers and friends like you who pour into my kids. That's important. But I want to be the one to ask good questions. And I do. And we all ask our favorite question. The kid comes home from school. How was school? And have you heard this answer? <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I, that's kid language for, I don't know. So, but it's, I don't know. That's how we get it all the time. My buddy Ben Alessi here has this way that we kind of stole from him. He shared it with our MC. He asks three questions. Uh, what was your highest of highs today? What was your lowest of lows? And how did you see Jesus at work today? Highest of highs, lowest of lows. How, does, how did you see Jesus? He said, and I agree because I see it in my table too, when we ask those questions, rather than how was school today, now we have what's the highest, the lowest, where did you see Jesus at work? And now we're, we're developing things in kids to see things differently by good questions. And so we could try something like that, using our dinner table, using our car rides for something more than screens, something more than movies, something more than video games. Let's try putting those away and asking some silly questions or serious questions, depending on the mood. Now, sometimes we pursue kids by talking to them, and sometimes we need to pursue kids by not yelling at them. They're kind of in the same realm here. They're both dealing with words. Ephesians 6.4 has, has a convicting verse for us dads. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, all, if you're like me, you need this tattooed on your, both of your forearms so you can look at it on either side uh, anytime. Is don't provoke your children to anger. And we often frame this the other way around. They provoke me. Do you know what they did? They provoke me. And... Honestly, they really do provoke me. A lot of times that's all true. But God doesn't give us a verse, children, don't provoke your parents, don't make dad mad, he'll put him in a bad mood all night. None of that. The verse is for me not to provoke them. But I'm the dad. Too bad. Don't provoke them. Because that is a way we pursue our kids. We've had some trouble in our household. And, um, you know, if you know us, you know a little bit about our, our trouble in our house. We've hired lots of parent coaches, lots of experts, lots of counselors. We believe in counseling and we, we pursue it. And one of the counselors told us this, and I think it's really helped me as a dad, maybe a, a quick, sharp-tongued dad at that, um, is that whenever you're in those moods where your kid is doing something he shouldn't do or not doing something he should, is you have that thing in you where you just want to say it. 
it, there's a word or there's a phrase or there's something hurtful that you know this would cut him to the quick. And it comes so easy. It's right there. I could just say it. It feels so good to say it, to get it out. But that thing that comes so easily to you is exactly the wrong thing to say. And the right thing to say is that thing in you that you know you should say to turn this whole stupid event around, but you refuse to say it. Like that one that you know a kind word or to say, I really love you and what, we need to talk about this. Like, I don't want to say I love you right now. I want to say something different. But the very thing that I want to say, I shouldn't say. And the very thing I don't want to say, because I'm so mad, is the very thing I should say. And this idea, I mean, it sounds like all, all of, it sounds like I'm a terrible guy. Because I am a terrible guy. Uh, is that the idea is that we have this facade sometimes that, oh, look how put together one is. Oh, look how well-behaved those kids are. Look how, look how, look how. When in reality, if we're honest with each other, as a lot of our guys are when we're off, it's like we get really mad as dads, and we really ruin the climate of our home with our anger, and we need to do something about that. It's not just me. I know it's me, but I know it's you too. And we could do this. We could pursue kids with our words, both the positive and avoiding the negative. Meg Meeker wrote a book called Hero, How to Be the Hero in Your Kid's, your kid's Life, I can't, something like that. Um, a, a good book. I mean, I, I like reading a dad book once or twice a year. It's, just a, it's good. Uh, Meg Meeker, the psychiatrist, says this. As a father, your words have an enormous, disproportionate impact on your family. You may not feel it, but your wife and children do, because you are the inevitable leader of your family. To your kids, you are neither just an angry, sad, or frustrated guy. You're their dad. Every word you say has the power to wound or heal, crush or inspire. Every word I hear, and my words have a disproportionate impact on family, on my family. Christy could say the same things I can say. I mean, if we're both in our worst moments. And my words would even have greater impact or perhaps greater for the good. Like Christy could compliment and I could compliment. And as a dad, for some reason, I have more power in that. We can pursue our kids' hearts with our words and we can use them to inspire our kids and ask for forgiveness when we don't inspire them, when we say cruel things. As fathers, we are specially placed to speak life into our kids' lives. We can speak life or death. And when, when I think of it like that, like looking at my three, Hudson, Josiah, and Grace, 11 and under, that I have the power to speak life, which is so refreshing to think about, but my words can be death to them. And that is a added weight in my, for me as a dad. And let's even add the weight even more. For good or bad reason, this may be right or wrong uh, to do, however, their view of God is correlated to their view of me. Their view of God is, is correlated to their view of me. I'm not their God, I hope not. Uh, but the way they think about how a father acts is going to be based on the other guy they know who's also called father, me. As a father, I share the name of God and I shape their understanding of God. That is an added weight that... I don't think mothers have that same weight. Well, our final point is this. God is glorified when we grow in our own spiritual life. Our whole family is better 
when we grow in our spiritual life. To do the other two well, leading family and pursuing kids, we need to have a full tank of spiritual growth in order to pour in and guide the children in our house. Are you men, both dads and yet-to-be dads, intentionally seeking ways to grow in your spiritual life? Are you doing that? This growth does not magically happen when you reach a certain age, whether you know, you're, you're in your 50s or you're 22 like me. It doesn't automatically happen when you reach a certain age or when you have so many kids or when you get married. Sometimes we think that, like, well, as soon as I get a kid, it'll be more serious. I'll read the Bible more. I'll stop looking at porn. I'll memorize uh, more scripture. It doesn't happen. In fact, when kids enter the house, everything gets worse because it's chaos for really 17 years. Uh, And so if you aren't strong now in your spiritual growth, it ain't getting any better when kids enter the mix, okay? Is that you need to take some steps toward your own spiritual growth. We can only help others well if we ourselves are running well. Dick Hoyt needed to be in shape in order to cross those uh, 1,100 finish lines. He needed to be in shape. He couldn't do that being out of shape. Nothing just accidentally happens. And here at Pillar, we want men to be connected. And uh, we have a few things that I want to put up here that perhaps one of these can speak to you. We want to have a lot of entry points that you have access to continue to grow in your faith because we care about men and their growth at Pillar here. So one of them is MCs. You've heard about MCs a lot here. At least once a week, someone says something about MCs. If you still don't know what they are, let's talk afterward. Let's get you into an MC, really, this week. Uh, Very important. That's the life and heart of our church. Fight clubs, one or two men, you fight sin together. Uh, That usually springs from your MC, but it doesn't need to. A couple I want to highlight here is our, our Bible study in Colossians starts this Tuesday. Uh, and it meets every other week at 1930, just right next door on the third floor. Zachariah Pittman, raise your hand, Zach, right here in front. Uh, he's heading that up. So if you have questions, talk to Zachariah. We really haven't had a men's Bible study in its purest form like this in the five years Pillar has existed. So it's, this is a nice step for us to, to go in. Men's breakfast is this coming Saturday. Uh, 26th at 7 a.m., same place, next door, third floor. Ben Alessi here. Raise your hand, Ben, if you don't mind. Just uh, there's, uh, Come talk to him if, if you want to ask questions about that. John Holmes, I don't think John Holmes is here, but uh, th- they'll be leading that. Keon Miller here with the bowling group. Keon, can you raise your hand on this? Uh, Keon has a unique passion to connect men in informal settings toward the gospel. And so hearing his his view of this bowling ministry, I don't, a bowling group, I don't know what to call it, but bowling for Jesus, uh, <laughs> is that every Wednesday uh, at Emory Lanes, every Wednesday at uh, 1900, he's going to be there. There'll be guys there bowling, having good conversation, nothing formal, all informal. But uh, if you get to meet Keon, you'll understand his heart and how this could be a way to connect with guys. Guys often do not have good friends. I can't tell you how many times people will say, I don't really have any friends here. I don't have any friends here. Um, Well, here's a way to get some friends, because you need friends. You're doing it on your own. You're not doing a good job of it. Something needs to change. Get a friend. Keon can help you, okay? And then the last one is not specifically for men, 
but this is an apologetics class that we have now that uh, the, em the elementary school is on break for the summer. Ben again and John Holmes are leading through a summer class on apologetics that is at the 11 o'clock this time. So you'd go to the nine o'clock service and then go upstairs and they'll take you through uh, six weeks, sorry, four, four weeks of an apologetics and starting off with why do we believe the Bible is the first subject. So we're not looking for any kind of programs to fill your calendar, okay? We need nothing else to do just because we want to do. We want to do because we need to do. We need to be able to connect with other men and uh, grow in our faith. And let me tell you this. Don't make your wives try to connect you with people, okay? I had a good friend in my group. His wife came to me and was like, hey, can you... Um, can you talk to Sam? Can you invite Sam to something? He just needs some guys in his life. I'm like, well, Sam can ask. I'd be happy, but maybe Sam should be asking. And so as we talk, and you know, I'm like, yeah, it's good. Men need to meet with men to t be honest about sexual temptation. And she's like, oh, wait, wait. Sam doesn't have any problems with sexual temptation. Yeah, okay. Sam never crawled me, uh, and I never met with Sam. Don't make your wife try to hook you up with other friends uh, to do this. It's embarrassing, okay? Honestly, be a man. Find someone that you can confide in to grow, okay? Uh, really, it's, it's all true. <laughs> As we kind of close here, when we start to look at fathers and we start off with Dick Hoyt and we look at the prodigal son's father, we can often be discouraged by these, this kind of fathering examples when we compare ourselves to either like real-life Dick Hoyts or fictitious Atticus Finch from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, the literature's best dad of all time, or Jack Pearson from This Is Us. I mean, these are superstar dads that I will only pale in comparison. But Hoyt's story isn't for us to go sign up for a father-son marathon, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, but it's a picture to see what true fatherhood is. Again, the main idea, God is glorified when these things happen, that, God, that fathers lead our families in strength pursue our children in love, and grow in our spiritual lives. God is glorified with all of this. A couple months ago, I watched the best Oscar for Best Picture called Nomadland. I don't know if anyone has seen it. It's not even that good. I don't know why it won Best Picture. So don't. I, there's no advocation for it here. But in it, there was this scene that I watched two months ago that really stuck with me. Uh, a bunch of friends and some family were sitting around the table. A guy raised his glass at Thanksgiving and said, you know, I'm just thankful for our, this food. And then he kind of corrected himself and he says, I am thankful for this feast, but not feast of food. I am thankful for this feast of family. And that phrase, feast of family, two months ago, I knew I, was, I would end up preaching Father's Day two months later, but two months ago, that phrase is what kind of framed this whole sermon for me. I didn't mention much about feast of family, but God has given me and Christy a feast in our house. And I act like I don't want it sometimes, you know, by my actions, by my anger. And that is paralleled to our feast of the pillar family. God has given us a feast. Some of us are disobedient. Some of us are not yet there. Some of us are a long way off. But this is a feast of family. And the way God looks at us is the way I want to look at my house. And I do on my best days. But on my worst days, I act like it's not a feast like it's something that I don't want. Well, how about you? Do you feel like your house, you could say this is a feast of family? That's how God the Father thinks of you. When God the Father looks at you, you are a feast 
for him. He delights in you the way we would delight in a great feast. The story of Hoyt, Team Hoyt is inspiring because it makes me want to consider how I can be that motor for my kids. Dad is my motor. How can I do that in the lives of my kids? And in sermons like this, it's often tempted to put ourselves in this father role, that we, we're positioned to think that we are the Dick Hoyts. We are the prodigal father, the prodigal son's father, noble, heroic, strong. But I think the story of both of these fathers who run is the opposite. We are not the fathers as the engine, but when we realize it, we are in the other seat. We are the disabled ones in the chair. We are the ones who were selfish and greedy and lazy and foolish. We are the powerless. We are the rebels needing to be pushed, needed, needing to be chased after. We aren't the heroes of this story. And our parenting shows us how unable we are to be heroes of our own story. Every parent I know, every parent I know says the same thing, that I never knew how ugly and selfish I was until I had kids. Is that you? It's me. I used to think I was a pretty good guy uh, until I had kids. But we need a father who runs toward us to change us. And as dads and all people, we see that we are powerless to earn favor with God. No matter what kind of dad we are, we could do all the coolest dad things possible to man, and that does not earn favor with God. You may be a failure as a dad, but that does not change the way God looks at us. Men, you may feel that you are a failure. I know I do. I compare, I react, I shout, I fail again and again. But God sees me differently. Rather than thinking of what a failure I am, I see that God is one who pursues me well, who pursues me when I am a far-off dad, for example. God looks at this sinner and that one and that one and that one and that one, and he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus. Jesus paid for your sin. Jesus took all of your sin on him so that you become this perfect, joyous, creature, a kid who he delights in, a feast of family. Our father sacrifices himself for our good, our victory, our joy. And this is the gospel. And this is one we need to hear every day. We need parables like the prodigal son and stories like Dick Hoyt to remind us of our own powerlessness, that we are not the fathers always trying to push the engines, but rather we are in the driver's seat. We need the Father, to push us. Even though we are foolish and wasteful and rebellious, our Father runs toward us in joy. Even though we're disabled and spiritually can't help ourselves, our Father intervenes and becomes our success. So that it wasn't Dick Hoyt who crossed the finish line 1,100 times. Rick Hoyt won those awards. Rick Hoyt has the victory in those areas. That's the way our God is. Our God is a running God, and he can be yours today. Whether we are dads or not yet dads, women, boys, girls, Hoyt and the prodigal son's father are running dads, and they are both snapshots to remind us that God is a running God, and he runs toward us all today, and for that we can rejoice. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for being a God who runs being a God who pursues us while we are a long way off. We thank you for being a God who, in spite of ourselves, is good, and you are joyous to us, Lord. Help us to know that joy. Help us, because of that joy, to 
bring that joy to our families, Lord. We need your help, Lord, especially for us dads today, Lord. We pray that you would give us the ability to be the motor for our kids because you are the motor for us. Thank you, Lord, for this feast you have given us. Amen.